you bow with me and pray as we start? What a great introduction for what we're about to do here. We're about to go to the Word of God where we may see Christ. These are not just words on the page, but these are living words. Words that can give life to those who are dead in their sins and words that continue to sustain those who are alive in Christ. I pray, Father, Lord, for our time right now in Scriptures. I pray, Lord, that it would be edifying for all that are here. And I pray that as we just sang that, you would show us Christ. You would show us Christ in the gospel, which so boldly proclaimed in this book. I pray that I will be faithful to the text and explain it clearly so that our hearts would be enraptured in what it is that you have done for us. While we were lost in sin, while we were away from you, we were bound to the system of the world, you have rescued us and you have given us life. And you deserve all praise for that and all glory. And we want to do that here this afternoon. Be glorified and magnified through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Last week, as I said, we begin our new series in this book, which we're going to call Guarding the Gospel of Grace. Now, we live in the world of buzzwords, such as diversity, equity, inclusion, tolerance, acceptance, and so on. If you want to be accepted in polite society, you have to repeat those slogans, you have to defend them, and at times you're even required to celebrate them. Now what's weird is that those who shout them the loudest are the least tolerant, are least diverse, and least accepting. Their street of tolerance is a one-way street. You see, they're willing to use all means necessary to defend their tolerance. All who question them must be silenced. If you disagree with them, they will malign your character. They will send a mob on you. They will silence you. You know, while we may disagree with everything they stand for, I want to suggest to you that there is something that we can learn from them. And that something is this. These people have convictions. And let me say it to you this way, that side with most convictions always wins. You see, these people believe in something, and they're willing to do anything and everything to fight against those who stand in their way. The most dangerous people are those who are willing to take or willing to pay any price for what they believe. I mean, 9-11, just an example. If you are convinced of what it is that you believe in and you're willing to pay any price for it, there is nothing that anyone can do to stop you from pursuing your goals. Now, we are not called to die on every hill as Christians. But... There has to be a hill where you draw a line. Is there not? You see, if they're willing to destroy people simply because someone uses a wrong pronoun, and very often we as Christians, we give away the whole barn just because we want to be nice, just because we want to be loving to people. Now, if there is one hill that you should be willing to die for, it is the gospel. Is it not? It is. You see, the gospel that is proclaimed in this book and the gospel that we seek to preach and the gospel that we seek to defend here will determine whether you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. Whether those whom, to whom you preach will go to heaven or go to hell. This ought to be one hill on which you should be willing to die. You see, we are evangelicals. Not as someone said, evangelifish. <laughs> evangelicals, euangelion. What is that? It means good news. The gospel. You stand and you defend the gospel, the good news that you received in Christ. And as we come to this book and we open in chapter 1 today, this is the book or this is the hill where Paul draws this line. Paul is going to stand on this line and he's going to defend the gospel. If you were here last time, you heard the whole book. And you probably remember that the book is not about hugs and kisses, right? In fact... There's very little of hugs and kisses there. The book is hard. The book is to the point. 
In chapter 1, Paul says, listen, if you preach a different gospel, or if you receive a different gospel, go to hell. That's rough. You get to chapter 5, and he's going to say, hey, you like circumcision so much? Oh, you think circumcision is going to get you to heaven? Well, why'd you stop with circumcision? Mutilate yourself completely. Oh, Paul, really? That's in the Bible. That's in the book right here. That's what Paul defends here. And Paul stood on that gospel, and Paul proclaimed the gospel. And guess what? Paul paid a price for that. At the end of this book, in chapter 6, verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. He says, I paid a price for it. Check my back. Paul paid the price. That's where he drew the line. Now, today we're diving into the text, and our text today is chapter 1, first five verses. The title of the message is Paul, the Apostle of Grace. I mean, these verses, they serve as an introduction for the whole book. And very often, as you come to the new book of the Bible, the temptation is to just skip over these pleasantries and move on to the good stuff later on in the book. But you can't do that because, in a sense, this section here, these five verses, they unlock the entire book. These verses are so loaded, and the way you would think of them is that perhaps, or pretty much every phrase here, is just like a hyperlink. A hyperlink that you click on, and it opens this whole section. And so here in this section here, in the beginning, in this opening, Paul gives this summary of everything he's going to say in the book. Now I want to unpack these five verses under two headings. First, I want us to talk about the commission of the apostle. The commission of the apostle. And then second, we're going to talk about the content of the gospel. The commission of the apostle and the content of the gospel. Join me as I read first five verses of the book. Paul. An apostle, not sent from man, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now let's begin with the commission of the apostle. Now if you were to go back to the first century and if you were to read some of the letters that were written at that time, they all follow or generally they follow a similar format. When a sender would write a letter, he would open up with his own name, then he would list those to whom he's writing, and then he would follow with a, some form of greeting. Now again, there were exceptions to this, but this was a general rule, this was the general format in which these letters were written. Now we have multiple letters in the New Testament, as you can see, and as you read through them, you see that the authors of the New Testament letters, they still follow the same format. Paul does the same thing in 13 letters, they pretty much open in this way, in this format. He takes every section, whether that's referring to him, or to, the, uh, to those to whom he is writing, and the greeting, and he tailors it in one way or another to people or to the situation into which he is writing. And we can learn a lot, not just from the words that Paul uses here, but also from the things that Paul omits. Because if there's a certain standard, if there's a certain way they do things, like say you take 13 letters that Paul wrote, and 13 letters they follow a similar pattern, and all of a sudden in one of them, the pattern is broken. Or something is absent, you're like, hey, why is he doing that? What changed here? And we can learn from that as well. Now, we don't want to make theological points based on things that are not there, but we can see that Paul is inferring something and saying something even by the things he omits. Now, Paul introduces himself in this letter and he begins by defending his apostleship. Notice here in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, if you weren't here last time, just a brief comment why Paul has to do this. The context behind this letter is Paul goes on his first missionary journey. And he travels through southern Galatia and he establishes four churches there. At least four churches that we know of. He travels further to do more ministry, and false teachers infiltrate those churches, and they begin to preach a different gospel. They begin to preach the gospel that not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but you know what? You need to keep the law, you need to get circumcised, and all the other stuff. And so they infiltrate the church, and they turn people not only against the gospel that Paul preached, but they also turn them against Paul. You see, it's much easier to discredit the message when you can discredit the messenger. 
Isn't that what happens in the court of law? Where you have lawyers trying to, you know, break the character or trying to describe the witness as unreliable so that then whatever it is that he's saying, well, he might be lying, you can't take that from him. You can't listen to him. And so that's what they did. They're trying to discredit Paul so that they can discredit the message that he's preaching. And they're attacking Paul based on what we can put together in this book when something like this. I mean, why would you believe Paul? I mean, who's Paul anyway? I mean, Paul was not a disciple of Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus. Like Peter and John, they weren't, he wasn't taught by Jesus. I mean, like the disciples that walk with Jesus, they received the real gospel. But what did Paul get? I mean, Paul probably, you know, hung out with John and Peter for a couple days, for a few weeks, and he's, he got the secondhand gospel from the other people, and now he went along and started preaching that. By the way, did Paul tell you who he was before his conversion? Well, probably not. You know, he omitted that section, right? And after true apostles forgave him for what he did to the church prior to his conversion, Paul went off on his own and started doing his own thing. He watered down the gospel. He removed circumcision. He removed the law and started preaching this easy believism that you can just believe in Jesus and be saved. That's not the true gospel. The true gospel is that you still have to do all those things. Listen, if Paul is an apostle, he's just like the second-rate apostle, the little A apostle. And his message, you shouldn't believe that because we are preaching to you the true message of the gospel. You see, if this was attack on Paul, then before Paul is going to defend his message in chapters 2 and 3, he needs to defend his apostleship. Because if you can dismiss him as an apostle, you can dismiss his message. Paul is going to spend two chapters here defending his apostleship, not because he's so insecure about his position. He really can care less about what people think about him. But what was at stake was the gospel. What was at stake, as you will see by the time we get to the end, was the glory of God. Now, a few observations about the first two verses. If you look at these first two verses, you will see that you have this beefed-up sender section. Sender, Paul describes himself, and he spends so much time describing himself, in comparison to those who are receiving this letter, Galatians. Now, just for fun, I went and I counted the words in Greek, and there are 26 words here that refer to Paul, and there are just four, word, four words that describe those to whom he's writing. That's on purpose. That's on purpose because, for example, let's look at the next three letters that Paul's write, Paul writes in your Bible. Look at how Ephesians starts. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's Sander. Recipients, to, those, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Pretty balanced. Book of Philippians, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's it for Sander. Recipients, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. What about the book of Colossians? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren who are, in, who are at Colossae. Almost in every case, in every letter that Paul writes, he briefly introduces himself or those who are writing with him, and then majority or the focus is placed on those to whom he's writing. But not so in this book. And by the time we'll finish, you will understand why. Let's look at the text. Verse 1, Paul. Now we know this was not his original name. We know that his name was Saul. We're first introduced to him in Acts chapter 7, where he's guarding the robes of those who are stoning Stephen. We're going to look at his pre-conversion life in a couple of weeks when we get to verses 13 and 14. But we know that Paul gets converted in Acts chapter 9. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, verse 9, that is the first time where the name Paul is used. The name Paul means little or means small. Now, we don't know much about his physical appearance, but it's safe to say that he probably would not be on the cover of man's health. The earliest description of him is found in 2nd century. This is not inspired, but we can still read this. He says, Paul was a man of small stature, with bald head and crooked legs, in the good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. That's the description from 2nd century of Paul. Now, again, we don't know if this is true, but we do know that his opponents in Corinth made fun of his physical appearance. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, they said, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. That's what his opponents said about him. Now, that's what they thought of him, but Paul opens this book and he says, yeah, all that might be true, but I am an apostle. I am an apostle. This is Paul's favorite self-designation. He writes 13 letters, and nine of the 13 letters open with this self-designation. I am an apostle. Who's an apostle? Apostle is one who is sent on a mission. And we're not going to spend much time here, but you know that the word apostle in the scripture is used exclusively, and it is used inclusively. When the word is used exclusively, it refers to the 12 who are directly chosen by Christ. It refers to Matthias, who, was, who replaced Judas after he committed suicide. It refers to James, because James, Jesus appeared to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and James is called an apostle, even here in the book of Galatians. It is refer, and it is used of Paul, who puts himself on par with these apostles, as you will see today. When the word is used inclusively, we have apostles of the church, or those who are sent by the church. For example, we have Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, verse 14. In Romans chapter 16, we have other mentioned apostles, Andronicus and Juniah. Now, as soon as Paul identifies himself as an apostle, notice there is this parenthesis, and he explains why, and he defends his credentials. He says, I am an apostle, and I'm here to tell you that I am not sent from men, nor through the agency of men. Notice the double antithetical statement. He says, not this and not that, but this and that. I am an apostle, and I, I don't come from here and here, but I come from here and here. Now look at his negations. First he says, I am not sent from men. Now he had to say that because this was the line of attack against him. I mean, we don't even know where Paul came from. I mean, who sent him anyway? I mean, we understand Peter, and we understand John. I mean, they walked with Jesus for three and a half years. But Paul, Johnny come lately. Where did he come from? Who sent him? And Paul says, no, no, I was not sent by a man. To say that not sent from man, he's basically saying, no humans were involved in my commission. Not only that, he says, I was not sent through the agency of man. In other words, God did not even use men to commission me. It's not like God appeared to Peter and John and says, listen, I think Paul is going to be a great tool, so I think you should go and appoint him as an apostle. But that's not what happened. God did not go to anyone and tell them to appoint me to this position. No, God did not use men, or God, I was not appointed by men, and I was not even sent by men or through men in order to be an apostle. Men were not involved in my commission, either directly or indirectly. So if men were not involved in his commission, well, Paul, how are you an apostle? He says, but I received my commission through Jesus Christ. Now, in this case, he does not negate Jesus' humanity because Jesus was a man, but he defends his deity. He says, my commission, the fact that I am an apostle and the fact that I am in this position, I didn't determine it myself. Man did not determine this, but Jesus Christ put me into this position. When he says that Jesus appointed me, or Jesus called me to this position, he's putting himself on par with other apostles whom Jesus chose directly. Listen to, his recount, to him recounting this commission on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 26, Paul says this in verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am now sending you. Apostolos means sent one, and here this is what I'm, I am sending you now. And what is your job? Your job is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what Paul was referring to. He says, on that road to Damascus, Jesus himself appeared to me, and Jesus himself commissioned me to be an apostle. But not only that, he says, but also God the Father who raised him from the dead. 
God the Father is the supreme authority in the universe. Is he not? You can't appeal to any higher court than God the Father. And Paul intentionally does that here because if you look at our five verses, God the Father is referenced three times in five verses. There is a reason for that. No, no, it's not some Joe who sent me to you. No, it was Jesus himself and it was God the Father. He is the highest authority. I have my commission from the king of the universe. I am on this mission because I did not appoint myself to this. He sent me. And notice he says, it is God the Father who raised him from the dead. And like, I mean, Paul, I mean, why do you have to do that? I know Paul, you love resurrection. And it's true, he loves resurrection because that's where the gospel was confirmed. But I think specifically why he's doing this is because seeing resurrected Christ was a qualification for apostleship. You remember in Acts chapter 1, when they're replacing Judas? This is what Peter says. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Paul says, listen, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, And this Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, was ascended on high. And when I was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, God the Father, through Jesus Christ, has called me and has commissioned me and appointed me as an apostle. I have authority of heaven to be in the position that I am. Now, Paul had a unique call. And some denied it, but at the same time, many accepted it. Because notice how he continues. He says, and all the brethren who are with me. I mean, very often when Paul writes a letter, he would put his name and then he would add some some people who ministered along with him, like Timothy or Salvanus. But he doesn't do so in this text. Notice in this text, he simply says, and all the brethren who are with me. Again, this is not an accident. This is intentional. Paul is saying, listen, I am not a rogue apostle who is just ministering somewhere else by himself and no one is following him. No, he says, by the way, behind me, all the brethren, they are all supporting my ministry. Listen, Galatians, if you are turning on me, if you are turning on the gospel that I'm preaching to you, you're not only turning on me, you are turning on all the brethren who stand behind me and behind the gospel that I am proclaiming. I mean, by implication, he's saying, listen, you're out of line, not me. Because the gospel that I preach is accepted by all the brethren. And they're all with me writing to you. And the point here is like, hey guys, are you going to just like go against this? Or are you going to stand with all the brethren who believe in this gospel? Are you like the smartest ones around? You figure this out? Like, oh no, Paul is preaching Paul's gospel. You're going to contra- contradict everybody? No, he says, all the brethren who are with me, they are standing behind me. They're with me. Paul is not marginalized, second-rate, little A apostle somewhere. No, he is a full-fledged apostle of Jesus Christ who has the support of all the brethren who are with him. Now, we'll dive deeper into the chapters 1 and 2, and Paul will explain this further. But for now, look at the Sanders. Who's this letter to? Who's Paul writing to? To the churches of Galatia. I mean, this is very brief and somewhat impersonal. I mean, like I read you a few introductions, and very often in some way he qualifies or he describes those to whom he's writing. For example, Ephesians 1, he says, to the saints, to the holy ones who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Colossians to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are at Colossae. Notice this description, there's this affection, there's this love that that you can see even in just the way he describes them. But here it's to the churches of Galatia. Now Paul has said, already established four churches that we know of, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And given the situation into which Paul is writing this, He omits all praise or commendation. He doesn't know how they're going to respond to this letter. 
Because based on what we read in this letter, these people are churning on the gospel. These people are churning on Christ. These people have churned on Paul. And you see, if you deny the true gospel, you deny Paul as the one who has preached the true gospel to you. When you deny the gospel, you lose Christ. When you lose Christ, you are no longer a church. A church without gospel and Christ is not a church. It might be a beautiful building, it might be a beautiful congregation, but it's not a church. And Paul identifies this and he says to the churches because he still assumes that some people are there. Later on in chapter 4 he says, listen, I have confidence in you that you will accept what I'm writing to you. So he's still hoping that these people will turn, that these people will not abandon Christ all the way. But for now, because he doesn't know exactly where they are and how they're going to respond, he simply says to the churches of Galatia. So Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by Jesus and appointed by the Father, and he's going to preach the gospel to those people. Now we examine the commission of the apostle. Let's look secondly at the content of the gospel. Now if first two verses were loaded, verses 3 through 5 are loaded as well. In a sense we can say that verses 1 and 2, they summarize chapters 1 and 2. And verses 3 through 5, they summarize the rest of the book. And it's like a hyperlink here, as you will see, as we're going to walk word by word or phrase by phrase. You can open this up and you're like, okay, he's going to elaborate that on this section. And then later on he goes, oh, he's going to talk about that in this section. But here what he does is he condenses it all into one sentence. And he says, guys, this is the message that I am preaching to you. Now, I call this section the content of the gospel because it is the summary of the message that Paul preached to them and the summary of the message on which they're now turning. This message that he preaches in verses 3 through 5 stands in contrast to the message that is preached by false teachers, the Judaizers. So the content of the gospel. Now let's briefly examine it. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote 13 letters, and 13 letters begin in this way with this greeting. Grace is a common greeting. Peace or shalom, as you know, it is a common Hebrew greeting. And Paul takes these two concepts and he creates his own signature greeting for all his letters. But it's not just like, hey guys, hi, let's move on. No, this greeting is full of content, as we say. As we're going to look at this letter and we're going to work through it word by word, basically, you will see that he begins with grace and peace and he ends the letter in exactly the same way in reverse order. If you look at chapter 6, verse 16, he says, And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And the very last verse of the book, Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. What is grace? I mean, we talk a lot about grace, right? You have this church, grace, grace, Bible, grace, grace, grace. What is grace? Let me give you an acronym that you can easily remember. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, grace is your greatest need in life. Apart from grace, you find yourself in a predicament out of which you cannot deliver yourself. Because you've sinned against infinitely holy God, all you and I deserve is wrath, judgment, and hell. And no amount of good works and no amount of anything else can ever atone for what you and I have done. Now, the two concepts that are closely related in Paul's writing, grace and mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. God withholding judgment from you. That's mercy. Grace is the flip side of that where he lavishes upon you that which you don't deserve. Mercy withholds judgment. Grace lavishes grace and you see, all of these riches that you receive in Christ have been purchased for you on the cross. The only reason why God is merciful to us, the only reason why there is common grace when there is special grace, is because Jesus Christ has died on the cross to purchase that for you. Because we don't deserve any of it. 
And that's why I say your greatest need is need for mercy and grace. Now, peace is the result of grace. Because you see, prior to your conversion, you are an enemy of God. Because you've sinned against God, you are an enemy of God. You hate God, and God stands against you. You're enemies. But you see, when you experience grace, when you experience reconciliation, hostility is removed, enmity is removed, and now there is peace. So grace is the basis for the peace that you enjoy as a believer. Those who experience grace, those who receive the gift of grace, by grace you have been saved, right? They now have the peace of God. And because they have peace of God, they have peace with God. Now what is the source of grace and peace? Look at verse 3. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, constantly try to think the way Paul is thinking in light of everything else you know in this letter. He's going to tell him that, listen, grace and peace does not come from obeying the law. Grace and peace does not come from getting circumcised. Grace and peace does not come from doing good works. Grace and peace does not come from you. You are not the source of that. The source of grace and peace is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, his warning Galatians, even here in the introduction by saying, guys, if you deny the gospel, if you deny Christ, you're cutting yourself off of grace. And because you don't have grace, all that is left for you is wrath and judgment. You want to do that? Grace and peace, they come from Christ. Do you see why he's so worked up in this letter? Do you see, he's like, guys, I'm perplexed about you. You are doing, you are walking away from the only thing that can save you. What are you doing? Now in verse 4, Paul explains how sinners can have peace with God. Like I said, this is the summary of the gospel. And he says in verse 4, Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You see, in order to establish peace with the Father, the Son gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself. Now that's grace. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't compelled to do it. No one forced him to do it. Jesus voluntarily gave himself. In John chapter 10, verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life. Now, the very next word is very important because notice it says he gave himself for our sin, on behalf of, in the place of. This is substitution because gospel is about substitution. You see, God bestows grace on us because he did not give any to his son when he was hanging on the cross. Because Christ stood in your place, therefore he received what you deserve because the Son was given over as a sacrifice for our sin. Now just a few weeks ago we celebrated death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did we not? And all of that is summarized and is captured in this one phrase here. He gave himself for our sins. Now think about this for a moment. The world, and even we as Christians, very often think lightly of sin. I mean, sure, there are these bad sins, like murder, pedophilia. I mean, but the rest of us, you know, like, I mean, we're all humans, aren't we? But notice, there is no distinction here between bad sins and good sins, is there? Or sins that are not so bad. No, no, he gave himself for our sins in fact every single sin regardless of how small it is required the death of christ you might be a murderer on the death row a serial killer or maybe once in your life you just told a white lie that didn't hurt anyone and even for you christ had to die now i'm not erasing degrees of sin and the effect that they have on us 
But one of my point is that in order for anyone to be saved, Christ needed to die. And Paul says here that Christ gave himself for our sins. You see, you might have grown up in a Christian home and you were protected from all of the filth out there. You've been a good child and everything's been great. But guess what? You have sin to your account because you were born with a sinful nature and you, in the realm that you are, you exercise that and you sin. And because you sin, you need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying to you, listen, there is Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. You see, it is because of our sin that we don't have peace with God. But in order to bring reconciliation, in order to accomplish salvation, Christ comes and he gives himself for our sins. And that's grace. That's mercy. That's kindness. You see, sin is the reason why he gave himself for our sins. But look at the purpose. For what purpose? So that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Now, this language is graphic here. Because you look at this word, rescue. And when you're thinking about rescue, what comes to mind? Sunshine, calm sea, sitting on the beach, beautiful waves. Is that what comes to mind? No. When we're talking about rescue, we're talking about a danger. I mean, think of rescue crews who go in after an earthquake and they're trying to pull people out of the rubble. That's rescue. Think about Titanic. When Sing has, uh, the ship has sunk and people are clinging for their life and they need somebody to come and rescue them out of frigid waters. This word is used this way in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 7, it is used to describe rescue from Egypt. Acts 7.34, he says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, their pain, and I have come down to rescue them. You remember in Acts chapter 12, where Peter is in prison awaiting his execution, and the angel delivers him? And then Peter says in chapter 12, verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Well, guess what? Nothing less is required when it comes to us. It says here that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us. In other words, you and I were in danger. You see, except most people today, they're like that frog in a boiling water. You kind of get used to the temperature and you kind of, you know, forget the environment that you're in. And it's just a matter of time until you boil to death. Because you're just so used to the environment you're in. And you don't even recognize the danger that you're facing. And yet he says you are in such a danger that you are about to fall into abyss and go to hell for all eternity. And Jesus comes in order to rescue us. What did he rescue us from? According to this verse. He rescued us from this present evil age. Now it's one thing to be rescued from slavery, physical slavery. And that's pretty cool. right? You're a slave. You're no longer a slave. Right? That's pretty good. It's one thing to be rescued from prison. That's pretty good, too. But notice here he says, He rescued us from this present evil age. He says that this world is operating on a system that is run by the devil. It is characterized by evil. You can take the entire span of history from Genesis chapter 3 and all the way into the future, and you can say that there are two ages. There is this present age that is characterized by evil, and then there is age to come. And you see, under God's sovereign control, this present evil age is governed by the devil and his minions. According to John 12 and John 16, devil is called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he is called the God of this world. According to 1 John 5, 19, it says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All who are in the world, all unconverted, are all subject to the system. According to John 8, 44, they are sons of devil. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, they are sons of wrath. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, they are blinded by the devil. And you read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, and it says they are held in bondage by the devil and they cannot escape. 
Now you see he's so clever that he seduced them that they think that they're free and they can do whatever they want. And when it comes to sin, he says, go ahead, do whatever sin you want. Engage in sin all the more so that you destroy yourself, you destroy your body, you destroy those who are around you, and then go to hell. He's perfectly fine with that. They're blind to the situation that they're in. And notice here in this text, he says that Jesus Christ has come on the rescue mission. He has come on a rescue mission to those who are in slavery, who are subject to the devil, who are subject to sin, who engage in all those things. Jesus Christ comes. Jesus Christ lives a perfect life. He goes on the cross, and he dies on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And then during your lifetime, Jesus Christ invades the kingdom of darkness, and he takes you, and he rescues you out of, he rescues you out of that system and brings you into the kingdom of light. That is what he did. That is what Paul is summarizing in this one little phrase. He rescued us. When you were lost, when you couldn't do anything, he went after you and he brought you and he delivered you. He invaded the kingdom of darkness and he brought you out. You know what? If you were a slave of sin, you don't just say, I'm not going to serve devil anymore. I'm tired of this. You're not. Slaves don't do that. Slaves need to be delivered and the same thing is true of those who are slaves of sin. And there's only one way to be delivered. To those who are in the gospel, those who have accepted the gospel, those who have believed Christ, see, they're no longer subject to this kingdom. You've been freed. You have been delivered. That's why the key verse in this book is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says, you were taken out of slavery. You were delivered. You've been given new life. Why in the world would you go back to your old life? You see, to abandon the gospel of free grace is to return to slavery and to be subject again to the present evil age. Now notice we are not removed out of this world, but you are not of this system. When Jesus was here on earth, he said this to the Jews who rejected him in John chapter 8. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Notice he says, I am in the world, but I am not of this world. And in John chapter 17, when he's praying his high priestly prayer, he said the same thing of those who believe in him. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You see, if you belong to Christ, you are no longer subject to this evil system of the world. Now, he leaves you here for a reason. He leaves you here for a purpose but you are no longer subject to that system. You see, because of indwelling sin and our failure to use the resources that we have, once in a while we go back to that old system. And once in a while we engage in the things that we've done while we were slaves. But you know what? That's not who you are. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. You belong to a different realm. You live on a different player, uh, plane. You're not a fish. And just like, you know, if you, fish can live underwater. You, on the other hand, can go underwater, but you can't live underwater. And the same thing is true of you. As a Christian, you sin and you do sin. And if you think you don't sin, read 1 John, and then you'll have to repent. But when you sin, you go back. Why? Because you are no longer subject of the devil. See, this here is the core of the gospel. This here is the core of the message that Christ, that Paul preached. And what he's saying here is that salvation is not about what you can do. Salvation it is about what Christ has done for you when he gave himself up for you. You see, to insist that you need to obey law or to get circumcised or to do anything else in your own power is to deny the sufficiency of Christ. To add anything to the gospel is to deny the gospel. You see, the only thing you and I have contributed to this is our sin. Because he gave himself for our sins. That was our part. That is all we contribute to it. The rest was his work and his alone. You see, it is offensive to God to say that you can somehow save yourself other than solely trusting Christ. 
And the reason why that's offensive, because if there was some other way to be saved, Christ wouldn't have to die. And yet here it is, God the Father devised the plan to send his own son so that you would be redeemed. And then you think like, oh, I can do it some other way. Really? You're smarter than God? It is offensive to God if you think that there is some other way to do it. It's offensive to God if you add anything to the gospel. And the reason why it's offensive because you diminish the sacrifice of Christ and you say, well, what Jesus did is really good, but then you just need to add a little bit more. You need to just work a little bit more. I mean, just get circumcised, just in case. He said, I did it all. And it's also offensive to God if you subtract anything from the work of Christ. Because his work was perfect. His sacrifice was sufficient. And the gospel is that you trust Christ and Christ alone plus nothing. You don't do anything to be, to be saved. You simply trust in Christ. And notice what Paul adds at the end. He says that his work was according to the will of our God and Father. You see, when Jesus gave himself up, he accomplished the plan of the Father. According to the will of God and Father. Again, God the Father, the supreme authority of the universe. He was the one who devised the plan of how he's going to save sinners. And God the Father and God the Son, God the Father says, this is what we're going to do. God the Son says, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to sacrifice myself. And so this gospel, this message that you're going to be saved by trusting this, it comes from God the Father himself, the supreme authority of the universe. So if you come along and you start preaching some other gospel that you somehow need to add something, take away something, do something in your own power, you're not going against Paul. You're not going against the people who are with him. You're going against God himself. God the Father himself. Because it was his plan that Jesus has carried out. And notice he closes this opening section with doxology. He says, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. You see, God deserves worship for this salvation. For this amazing redemption. You see, this gospel and only this gospel results in the glory of God. Every other so-called gospel robs God of his glory. Because if you did anything, and if you contribute anything, then there, you get some credit. And you get some credit, and you steal glory from God. And Paul says, no, no, that's not how it works. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He devised a plan in such a way that God would get all the glory. Because God did it all. All you and I, as I said, have contributed is our sin. And you see, God devised his plan in such a way to maximize his glory. That's why Paul says, to whom be the glory forevermore. Not to us. Not to us, but to his name be the glory. Is it not what Solomon says? It is. Because he did it all. Because he accomplished it all. This gospel that Paul proclaims gives all the glory to God. Notice Paul does not defend himself because somehow he's concerned with his reputation. No. What's at stake here is God's glory. That's what's at stake here. Because if you preach some other gospel, if you teach people that they can be saved some other way other than solely trusting Christ, you're robbing God of the glory that he deserves. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to preach, I'm going to teach, I'm going to confront and rebuke you because God deserves whole glory. And the only appropriate response to this is amen. That's why he's like, man, period, end of story, no conversation, we're done. And you can close the book and move on, right? Well, I think he's got six chapters after that. No, he says, amen. So he takes and he summarizes everything that he's going to say, but for now he says, amen. You see, that's why he's so fiercely defended his apostleship that's why he so fiercely defended the gospel and the question for you here is do you believe this gospel do you believe this gospel yes it is a humbling message it is very humbling to say listen i'm really sorry but there is nothing that you can do that will be accepting to god because our human pride and our flesh thinks that but what about this and what about that but what about all my other no you can't contribute anything you have nothing to contribute. All your best works are like, I'm not going to say what it is, right? Isaiah 64. That's what it is. Because you see, it is a humbling message because it is only for those who declare their spiritual bankruptcy and who say, Lord, I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer. 
all I want to do is I want to come and I want to beg for mercy and grace. It is grace for those who don't work. Because as soon as you work for it, it is no longer grace but a wage. Gospel is the gospel of grace because it is given freely to those who come. And those who accept and receive this message of the gospel, they have peace with God. So do you believe this gospel? And you're not answering this for me, you're answering for yourself because the answer to this question will determine your destiny. Whether you're going to be saved or you're going to be condemned, do you trust Christ and Christ alone? Now for us who believe this gospel, are you willing to stand on this hill? Are you willing to defend it like Paul did? And think about this. Are you willing to cling to this gospel even after you're saved? Because you see, it is this gospel. It's not the gospel that just saves you when you're unconverted. But on your bad day this week, when you're going to sin and you're going to stumble and you're going to fall, what are you going to hold on to? That you're a good Christian? That you're a victorious Christian? That you no longer sin? What are you going to hold on to? No, you're going to hold on to this gospel that, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, I fall. But I am saved by the grace of Christ. It is not a license to sin, but it is that gospel that holds you at all times that on my best day I need the gospel and on my worst day I need this gospel so you're going to believe this gospel you're going to try this you're going to trust this gospel and are you willing to proclaim and defend this gospel even when you're attacked for it Paul paid a price for it but you know what it is worth defending this gospel it is worth proclaiming this gospel because it is the only gospel that will take people who are lost and bring them into the kingdom of Christ. It is the only gospel that can be said. Everything else is not the gospel, as we will see next time. But for us here, may the Lord be pleased to use us so that we would go forth from this place and we would proclaim this gospel. We would defend this gospel so that this place would be filled with sinners who have been rescued by this gospel and have been brought into the kingdom and now they have peace with God. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take us and use us. And we ask that you would put people in our lives to whom we may proclaim this gospel. And we ask that you would be pleased to take our words and through them regenerate the hearts of those who are lost in this world so that this place would be filled with those who would be giving you glory alone because you deserve all the glory. We pray this for your glory. Amen.